0: Well, let's learn about the church. Specifically, the history of the church. Um, we are in the uh, final lesson of the age. I'm going to wrap it up here this morning with the age of the apostles and, and uh, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the founder of the church, um, his message was clear uh, when he uh, opened up his ministry. And uh, specifically I should say when John the Baptist, the forerunner of his ministry, declared that the kingdom is at hand um, and his message was to repent and be baptized, we've been through John on Wednesday nights, hopefully uh, hopefully you learned something there, um, the book of John that is. And we left off um, about halfway through Palestine in Jesus' day, I want to pick it up there. And, and, and just again, remind us why to, why learn about this? Why learn, why have a history class in church about the church? Um, well, for most believers, there's a gap. Um, and for some believers, there, it, co- it can cause even a stress or an anxiousness, right? We have scripture, and then we have a gap in time after the book of Revelation, and there's multiple you know, there, there's a lot of centuries that have happened since then, and, um, and where does that leave us, right? And, you know, either it strengthens your faith or you have doubts, and so we don't want the doubts. So, let's pick it up a little bit about Palestine uh, in Jesus' day, um, and it's kind of interesting, demographically, not a lot of change. Not a lot of change to that region of the world. Um, its population back then about 2 million, approximately only 9 million today. Uh, Jews represented about half the population at Jesus' time and it's not a lot different today. Um, it's a pretty culturally diverse region, those of you who've been there know that. Uh, it was uh, ruled by Rome then and divided by region religion and politics. It's uh, uh, there are other rulers within Israel and Palestine now you have the Gaza Strip you have the West Bank you have other parts of the you know what is proper Israel today that are not controlled by the Israeli government um, they have checkpoints and uh, IDs that they have to carry to get to and from places in Israel uh, politically there's you know it's it's Not a lot different even than it was then with uh, outside influence. The point being, it's very frustrating to be a Jew and live in your promised land and not necessarily have it be all yours. They look at important religious sites and uh, religious designations where other religions are built on top of it and share it. But there will be a day... When the Lord rules and reigns His kingdom in that region. Um, about a day's walk, even today, you can go from rural farming villages to bustling cities. You could in the day of the Lord. You still can today. In Jerusalem, priests sacrificed old, uh, sacrifice to the Lord of Israel while not even 30 miles away. Pagan priests held religious rites in honor of like the Roman god Jupiter, for instance. And I gave you an example last time you know, in Corinth where Paul um, you know, specifically was preaching in amphitheaters that were also used for religious gatherings for like the god Aphrodite, the Greek gods, <clears throat> and Roman, uh, Roman pagan gods. Jews deeply resented and despised the pagan culture that exists in their homeland and still does today. Ironically, in the previous time period, in Hellenistic period, which was the Greek period, that led into the Roman Empire, it brought with them, and and just, just to point out, you know, how God has used the history of Israel to further his own kingdom, brought about a common language, which we would call lingua franca today. For instance, you could go to France, or you could go to Germany, or you could go to Argentina, and many people speak what language? English. Well, in the time of Christ, there was uh, Koine Greek or common Greek um, that was brought into the area and ultimately provided the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew um, Old Testament. Well, that helped spread Christianity in that time period. Centuries earlier, prophets of Israel had a promised day when the Lord would deliver His people from their pagan rulers, and establish the kingdom forever on the whole earth. Of course, this is the message of Christ. On that day, the prophets said the Lord would send an anointed ruler, a Messiah, to bring an end to the corrupt world and replace it with an eternal paradise. Of course, that has not happened yet. Daniel and other prophets explained that the Lord's kingdom would be established only after a final struggle between Satan and the Lord. Of course, that did not happen yet either, but will it would end with the destruction of the existing world order and creation of a kingdom without end. This belief, along with ideas about the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment, was in Jesus' day very much a part of popular Jewish faith. Okay, so when Christ came and preached this message, it's why you have many who are thinking, alright, Lord's going to set up His kingdom right away. <laughs> And the disciples were disturbed when the Lord said, Hey, it's better that I go away. And they wanted clarification on that. We would too. Out of the distaste for the Romans, though, several factions arose. I want to review this just a bit. I really flew through this last week. Two of these became Christ's enemies. You call them your sons of your father, the devil. You're a brood of vipers. Um, they were the political, you know, who's who of the time and, the, you know, kind of the highfalutin society. Of course, those being the Pharisees and Sadducees. Interestingly enough, and I mentioned this last time, they didn't even get along. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not, they were, they were not buddies. Okay, but they came to be when they had a common enemy, which of course was who? It was Christ, it was Jesus. And I'll get to that more specifically this morning. The Pharisees, which the name, the very name of it means separated ones. They prided themselves on their strict observance of every detail of Jewish law. These guys were legalistic. They were their piety and patriotism made them respected leaders among their people, um, but they were haughty and they were legalistic. The Sadducees were Jerusalem's aristocracy. This is the this is where the wealth was. This was the low percentage of the time. Not a lot of them, but a lot of the wealth was held by this group. Um, the Sadducees loved the Roman Empire. They, they found it advantageous because they were represented by a conservative political group called the Sanhedrin. They were sort of allies to Rome and keeping the peace and sort of ruling over what Rome really honestly thought Israel as a problem. Sort of a problem child. And, and the Sanhedrin were... were key to Rome in helping keep, and uh, helping rule over Israel, over Palestine. <clears throat> Many of them enjoyed this sophisticated manners and fashions of Gre- Greco-Roman culture. Some even took Greek names. They had little influence among the common people. The common people just kind of were like, eh, they don't really care about us. They've got this relationship with Rome. Um, and, uh, and it really was not a, a a dynamic rule over the people. The Pharisees were much more um, respected by the general population of Jews. Zealots. The Lord kind of had an avoidance of these folks. Um, They were a small faction. They were bent on armed resistance toward Roman rule over their promised land. Their idea was to look back a couple of centuries to the glorious days of the Maccabees. Um, When the religious zeal combined with a steady sword to overthrow the Greek overlords, they wanted to take Israel back by force. They held small numbers of guerrilla forces in the hills of Galilee, ready to ignite a revolt against Roman authority in Palestine. Um, We have only a couple instances scripturally where there may be a person who uh, was a zealot. The Essenes, these are the group of people They were common Jews. This is where Christ's ministry began um, with with this group of people. They had really no interest in politics or warfare. Instead, they withdrew to the Judean wilderness where they lived in monastic communities, studied scriptures, prepared themselves for the Lord's kingdom. Jesus began his ministry with this group of people. You think of the, uh, the early days of the Lord's ministry began in the wilderness when Uh, John the Baptist welcomed in Christ, the forerunner, and uh, you have multiple um, instances where Christ's ministry begins in Galilee or begins in the hills. So let's look at this. What was Jesus' ministry? How is this connected to the church? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus chose to begin his ministry by joining a new movement in the Judean wilderness led by a prophet named John the Baptist. It was near the ford of the Jordan River, or the beginning of the Jordan River, where John preached to the crowds wearing a garment of camel skin to repent of their sins and prepare for the coming of the day of judgment, receiving baptism in the Jordan. Many thought John was the Messiah, but John, of course, vehemently denies it. Right, Several places in Scripture, John says, I'm not even worthy to take the sandals off the feet of you. The, the man who will follow. He explained his mission in the words of the prophet Isaiah. He said, "I'm the voice crying in the wilderness." And I mentioned this last time, but I'll mention it again here. Um, it's interesting, and I love these little historical tidbits because it's just a, it's just more really evidence of the greatness of our Lord. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a king to send an entourage or to send a forerunner before him to a land that he was going to visit or a land that uh, maybe there was a war that was uh, to be expected between two nations or three nations. We see evidence of this even as far back as the book of Ezra. But they would send a forerunner who would go decree, hey, king so-and-so or king, you know, or this nation is going to be visiting. Well, Christ's ministry was no different. So, different. Of course, he is a king. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father now, waiting to make the nations his footstool. And he sent John the Baptist as his forerunner. So it was, it was, uh, it was kind of linked to Christ being a king. And John was the, was the forerunner, the one to send out the decree, the one to introduce Christ's ministry. <clears throat> so John's ministry drew quite a crowd. We know this, and uh, by the crowds that are explained in Scripture, when Jesus' own uh, baptism um, ultimately began his own ministry. Rather than remaining in the desert, I want to go back to this, by the way. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. I skipped over that. my fault. Um, Here is John's announcement about his ministry. Go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. Someone can read that. And then someone read Luke chapter 3, verse 16. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. Yeah, so this is um, prophetic straight from Isaiah chapter 40. Um, So John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy. Go to Luke chapter... 3 Verse 16. Right after Mark. John entered
1: and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire.
0: Yeah, there you go. So the ministry of John is to introduce the ministry of Christ, one who will ultimately have saving power. And judgment power. Um, so rather that so this begins in the wilderness, alright? It begins with the common people. Um, wouldn't be much different than, than us. Rather than remaining in the desert wilderness, though, he focuses in Galilee, traveling from village to village, preaching in synagogues in the evening on the Sabbath. Causes problems when Christ preached on the Sabbath, um, but it also was a way for him to announce his own, uh, his own power. Jesus taught that the rule of God was also already present in saving power in his own person, and he offered proof in his signs and miracles. We've spent a lot of time talking about that Wednesday nights of John, and also over the last couple of years about the kingdom. Let's go to Luke chapter 11, verse 20. So you're in that book. Would someone else care to read that verse? But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Alright, what has come upon you? He's casting, he's he's performing signs and miracles but to announce what has come upon us. What has come upon you? Kingdom. Kingdom. Right, the kingdom of God. So Jesus... His ministry starts to draw large crowds gathered around him wherever he spoke. Um, it would cause quite a stirring. I mean, imagine, I, I, I like to, when I'm thinking about history or even reading in scripture, I mean, imagine yourself being in the 5,000 or imagine yourself, you know, seeing some of these miracles and stuff. I mean, it would cause an absolute shock. This isn't fables, this isn't Paul Bunyan. You know, this is real, actual happenings. This is truth. And so when that stuff happened, because it did, it caused a massive stir. Some of Christ's public, public teachings, such as the two men who went to the temple to pray, did not go over very well with the Pharisees. So I want, again, think about the climate of the time. Right? You have a guy coming in here who claims to be God, to be bringing the kingdom of God, and it was a rightful claim, correct? And so you have these claims happening. What do you think is going to happen to the political rulers of the time? What do you think is going to happen to the general population of the time? It's going to cause a stir. I mean, imagine in our day, right? Imagine this happening in our day. Um it would cause a great stir. Go to Luke again, a couple chapters over. Go to Luke 18, 11-14. Luke 18, 11-14. Who'd like to read that? But there he stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you, and I am not like other people, similar to unjustly filters, or even like this tax collector. I fast once a week, I... The patience of all that I get, but all but the tax collector staying some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his bread, saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you the man I tell you this man went to his house,
1: and justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but he who humbles himself will be humbled.
0: Well, no, there's a lot here, and what I want to bring out of this is the attitude of the Pharisee. Um, the attitude here is so bad that he cannot notice his Lord and Savior, right? He he doesn't he he looks at what he does and has somehow earning his way and in his pompous, proud, arrogant manner, um, right? I pay twice a week and. Um, And I give tithes of all that I get. And then you have the lowly tax collector who was not well respected by the people of his day. Of course, his prayer is quite different. Um, Recognizes his own sin. Recognizes the error of his own way. I want to pull from this, though, the attitude of the Pharisee. Um, These are the people that Christ is challenging and ultimately um, are not in his kingdom. Jesus handpicks 12 apostles. What does apostle mean? It means sent ones. Ones who are picked and sent out. What are they sent out? When you send someone out, they must uh, have some kind of job, right? They must have some kind of mission. They must have some kind of goal. Um, They must have something they were taught that they must deliver. That's the point of these apostles. Jesus taught them clear distinctions between his kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. Even in this day. And, and when you read in scripture the world, you know, don't be of the world. Don't love the things of the world. Those are good examples. It means to not love the systems of the world, the attitude of the world, the, the age in which we live. Don't enjoy the things that are going to cause distraction. Um, the, the Lord was very clear in his teaching to the twelve that you ought to be focused on one kingdom, which is What? Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom, the one that will be coming, though all other kingdoms will not exist anymore. And so we shouldn't love those. We shouldn't put any hope in those. And the 12 didn't. So along these lines of Isaiah's description of the suffering servant, he was despised and rejected of men. By his stripes we are healed. This is out of Isaiah 53. We don't have to go there for this. And the images of Zechariah's prediction that the king of Israel, how would he arrive? He would be on a humble donkey, mounted on a donkey, even a colt or the foal of a donkey. Um, that is how our Lord entered. And how did he do it? He fulfilled scripture by doing it this way. All right, all to point out here that the Lord is authentic. He, his, uh, his, his kingdom is fulfilling the prophecies that had to be fulfilled, every aspect of it even to the last week of his life. Let's look at this. The last week of the Lord's life, there are the prophetic portraits such as Daniel and Zechariah, which I just mentioned, were on the mind of Christ when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling the prophecies. The occasion uh, occasion is critical, why? Because it clearly identifies Christ with the Jewish prophecies of a Messiah. He even says to himself as he's coming in, remember, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only what? If you only knew. And, and this is a clue into what was on the mind of the Lord. He is at that moment going into Jerusalem, fulfilling these prophecies. Brian, go ahead.
1: Yeah, just being here and just seeing him coming down. of Yeah. It's very close to the temple. Yeah. I mean, they would have seen in the temple what was going on. All these people coming down.
0: Just talk closer to
1: them, like
0: Yeah. Well, I think it would have had a whole lot more significance if they would have recognized Scripture in the time of Christ. And, of course, it uh, didn't. Uh, but prophecy also said, hey, those, you know, your own will not recognize you. Your own will despise you. And that's, of course, what happened. Let's look at some of the, the specific events here. The next day after his triumphal entry, so the very following day, when they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and throwing palm branches on his pathway into the city, the very following day, what happens, right? They're ready to king, crown him king, right? No, not so much. All right? This, there's a dramatic turn. Jesus leads a procession to the temple, and he drives out the money changers, and he declares it, what? His His house. Of prayer. Clear declaration of who Christ is. This is in Matthew 12:12. 12, 12. The news of this dramatic event quickly sweeps through Jerusalem and begins, people begin to flock to the temple to catch a glimpse of him. Rumors spread of the Messiah and the imminent destruction of the temple. The talk alarmed the authorities, the temple authorities. This would be shocking. Okay, it would be shocking. I don't even really have a good comparison for today. Um, what if Galilean, or what, what? if this Galilean were to ignite another revolt against the Roman government? Those are the thoughts that are happening here. What if, what if this happens? Well, that ruins the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing with Rome. That disrupts culture. That disrupts economy. That disrupts everything. It's, it's shocking. <clears throat> Yet they were hesitant to arrest him for fear of a riot. I, I mean, imagine this now. Jesus' popularity and his ministry had grown to the point in this time period that the own authorities were afraid to arrest him and take him into captivity because it would just further an even greater riot and maybe those who are in power lose power. That should give you a glimpse of how, um, how widespread and how powerful the uh, Christ's movement had become. Jesus was a clear threat to the Pharisees' strict legalism and the Sadducees' political position with the Romans. Therefore, they formed quite an odd alliance. Together, they concluded that Jesus must be silenced before creating an uprising with Rome. And so this begins what? The ultimate plan to betray Christ, to get him arrested, to get him before Pilate, to get him before the Roman uh, authorities as well. They concluded that Jesus got to be brought to trial, and he's got to be condemned to death. Thankfully for you and me, this happens. So with the aid of Judas from Iscariot, they pay him 30 pieces of silver, and the plan is carried out. The Pharisees and Sadducees were able to arrange for the arrest of Christ by Roman soldiers. And interesting, this is, I want you to think about this too. So the leader of this, this sort of revolution, the leader of, of the popular, um, what I want to say, popular sect of people, no revolt has started. The closest thing to a revolt is Peter swinging a sword and taking off the ear of one of the soldiers, Roman guards, to arrest him. And of course, Christ puts an end to that by doing what? Heals it, picks the ear up, sticks it back on there, and some, you know, heals it immediately. I think it's a sign that uh, the Lord had this all planned out. So why, why, why no revolt? Why not set the kingdom up then? What what's in His plan? What's the master plan here, right? What's what's going to be executed is the new covenant, which you and I enjoy today. So not long before the arrest of Jesus was a really, really important event. The first day of the Jewish Passover when Christ reclined at the table with the 12 apostles to commemorate the exodus of the Jews out of Egypt. And at this feast, Jesus declares and proclaims the new covenant, right? On their hearts, I'll write the law and I'll make their heart new, remember this? Am I remembering? Is it Zechariah or Jeremiah right now? I'm trying to remember. 31. Jeremiah. Thank you. Christ gave the emblems of the bread and wine to illustrate his body and his blood. And of course, where do we celebrate this today? Here in church. Right? It's one of the things that we do. It says, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of what? Of Christ. Why? Of his sacrifice. The background, to be sure, was the exodus from Egypt. Right? The deliverance of the nation of Israel out of the hands of captivity of, of Pharaoh. And what did it do? It formed Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai. Right, Moses is, you know, goes up, gets the Ten Commandments, gets instructions. Essentially, it's a, it's a constitution for Israel. But Jesus had in mind much more than the reminder of the obvious at this event. Christ spoke of the new covenant in his own blood. Now, I'm picturing this. Okay, you've got 12 guys seated around a table. The Lord is giving some serious, serious instruction. Um, and he's telling them, you're going to get you know, a new covenant. They've got to be, what in the world is all of this? Um, announces his betrayal. Um, you know, several other huge, huge things. But his words echo the prophet Jeremiah. There, yeah, I did put it in right now, it's good. Jeremiah 31, let's go here. What is he declaring? What is this new covenant? It's a good reminder. Jeremiah Ezekiel, 31, 33, to 34. This is a unreliable section if there ever was one. Hint, hint, if you want. Would someone like to read that? Isaiah 31-34. They're fairly long, but be brave.
1: Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after I declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not touch, teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Hmm. For
0: I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So he's bringing in, he's about to bring in this new covenant. He's about to replace the old covenant with the new. And in his words here, he's telling the disciples this, echoing the very words of Jeremiah. And at the moment, the disciples undoubtedly are puzzled by his words and his actions. But in a matter of a few weeks, they would see all of these things in the final hours, revealing new life, revealing what Christ spoke. So after the first communion, Jesus leads his disciples to a familiar place, the Garden of Gethsemane. They go up there. What do they do? What's what's happening here? Remember this? They they're all alert. They're awake. They're ready to pray. Right, right. They're right there at Christ's side. They see the you know the stress that he's going through. Now, what happens? They fall asleep, and the Lord you know prays an important prayer, uh, and. Uh, You know, it ultimately gets himself ready for his arrest, the trials, and the death. After renewing his commitment to God, the Father, in his prayer, that I just spoke about, Jesus arouses his sleeping disciples. Not long after that, Roman guards show up. Judas betrays him with a kiss. And Jesus is seized and dragged away to the place of Caiaphas. Let's go to Matthew 26, verse 47. Let's read this. And I may have you read a couple more verses in addition to that. I think I might want to go back to about 42. Let me get there myself. While he was still speaking, the Judas,
1: one of the twelve, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and
0: elders of the people, Will you read down through fifty? Thanks, Ethan. Now he
1: was betraying him,
0: him a sign saying, "Whatever I kiss, he is the one." Seize him immediately. Judas went to Jesus and said, "Hail, Rabbi!" And kissed him. And Jesus said to him, "Friend, do what you do what you have come for." Then they
1: came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him.
0: Yeah, there's the event. So this is this is premeditated. This is. Predetermined. It's thought out. It's carried out by Judas and um, and the uh, Roman coh- cohorts. Um, I love this part here that Jesus recognizes this, and he just says, "Friend, do what you came to do." Um, he was already to to uh, Christ is already to do his part. So what happens after this? Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate. Then before Herod, and I, this is way paraphrased. Okay, so if you want more than this, read the rest of, you know, Matthew's account uh, in 26 through 28. But Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin. Who are these guys? Remember this? Which group? The Sanhedrin are the aristocracy. Which which of the four groups? The Sadducees. This is these are the rich guys. These are the guys with the sort of the aristocracy of the time who have connections to which uh, political empire at the time, Rome. to Rome. So they're bringing in Rome. Then they go before Pilate, which makes sense. Then they go back before Herod. Then he goes back before Pilate again. Then Pilate with the chief priests and all the rulers. And finally, before Pilate and the mob of the people. So he goes through six illegal trials in a very short span of time. It's a kangaroo court if there ever was one. It's premeditated since before Judas' betrayal. And ultimately, what do they do? Pilate gave up the mob their wish, which was what? Remember, they had to choose between two guys. Who did they choose to crucify? Christ instead of Barabbas who was a murderer, a criminal at the time, um, Christ, the king and savior of the world, crucify him instead. So Pilate Lee gives the mob their wish. He pronounces Jesus to be crucified. And Christ was hung on the cross at Golgotha. On the third day, he cries out, he gives up his own spirit and completes the uh, death, resurrection and ascension later on, um, ultimately the salvation package that you and I enjoy today, ultimately ushers in the new covenant. And what I want to do here is connect this, and I put the timeline at the end here just a little bit, but the death of Christ, actually really the resurrection of Christ, ushers in a new covenant, a new era, in which now Christ leaves. Uh, goes away and he leaves his spirit. Right? Remember in John in the upper room, uh, John 15, 14, 15, and 16, he he leaves and he goes. It's better that I go away so that the Spirit will uh, will come. Um, he will be your helper. He will be your guide. We're in a new era. We we usher in the church age, and so Christ's very ministry and offer of the kingdom, which is bona fide, ultimately gives way to the church age. Um, Where you and I still sit today next week. I'll talk a little bit more about the Catholic age and connect The 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 pre you know the events that we just finished here uh, Really with the destruction of Jerusalem and what happens to the church then it's interesting And I'll I'll just paraphrase a little bit uh, for some coming attractions here, and we're this is the first I don't know that I've ever ended early Um, so enjoy that but what, what's happening here is after the death of Christ, okay, you have what's called the Great Diaspora. Anybody know what that is? Dispersion. Dispersion of whom? Jews. Jews. So now within Israel you have, and the book of James really, if he, he in the early um, chapter, the first chapter of, of James, um, he kind of describes this a little bit. Brethren, whenever you encounter various trials uh, of you know, anything, and he's talking about this dispersion. Jews are under persecution, mass persecution. They're, they have to leave the area because of just up, you know, political uprising and, um, and problems. And what happens is the spread of, of Christianity with it. Those who had out under Christ's ministry um, and the establishment of the church, all of a sudden you have uh, churches popping up. Alright, and not just in Jerusalem, but in, of course Paul's journey, and I'll talk about that here uh, next week as well. Christianity and the establishment of Christianity in the church age really begins after Christ's death, um, resurrection, his, his uh, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. So I'll connect that much more. And then you start to have more description after the book of Acts and then into the epistles on the church itself and how it ought to be run. Everything from the administration of church to communion to leaders to how, uh, how, what the church looks like, who it ought to be ministered to, or who is, ministering, uh, who is ministering and who is being ministered to. So we'll talk much more about that. And then we'll get into the survival of the church really uh, throughout the time periods. Uh, Toward today, and that's really what it is. It's the survival of the church Um, Which is which is I'm excited to talk to you about especially once we get into Reformation So what I'm going to do is I'm going to end the class uh, Because Pastor Bob is going to teach Starting the first week of September So I'm going to kind of reshuffle a little bit of my lessons and I'm going to hit at least one time period and there are eight We've just finished one a couple of them going to combine because they're so similar in terms of um, You know what happens to the church? But by the end of the class, our goal and and what I'm hoping to have is for you to have a really good understanding of where the church is in 2023 and how God has sustained the church from his own age, Christ's age, and the apostles to where we are today. Um, And I think it's important because we can take great confidence, great confidence in. in the fact that the church is today the true church, and let me be clear true believing church, okay, not other things, um, we can take great confidence that it is exactly what Christ intended. And, and that's important. Any questions or comments? Anything at all? I feel like you need to get up and do like three, four, five jumping jacks. Um, but listen. This stuff is important for us because I, I, if you talk to Christians, you talk to believers who are out there, um, we can. it is very, very easy to mentally not be able to connect the time when Scripture ends to today. What about the church? What has happened? Have we deviated? Have we not? Are we accurate? Are we following doctrines? Are we you know, doing and carrying out what we ought to um, and the answer is yes If you are going to a church with a high view of scripture A high view of God And whose ultimate goal is to follow scripture And carry out church the way it ought to be If, if you are there, be confident If you are not there, be worried There are seven churches described in Israel um, I'm sorry, seven churches described in Revelation And how many of them Um, one for sure maybe two how many of them are really carrying out what Christ had intended and revelation is future tense isn't it so that's where we're headed so I think we need to know we have an awareness have an alertness about us um, as we move forward I feel really weird ending right now but let's pray Um, I'm glad that uh that we are where we are and um, very very thankful for that. So let's pray together. You'll have a little extra time for coffee and fellowship, hang out, high five each other, whatever it is you do. All right? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are just eternally grateful for your church. We look forward to spending eternity with your son. We look forward to spending eternity together as believers. Lord, what in the world will that look like? How amazing that will be. We look forward to the day of your kingdom. We look forward to the day of your coming, even as uh, you're taught, told us to pray, Lord, uh, Thy kingdom come. So, Lord, we 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 it, until that happens, we ask for grace, we ask for wisdom. Uh, we thank you for uh, the time and age that we live in. It was exactly as you intended, even before the foundations of the earth. Most of all, Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us fall more deeply in love with our citizenship with it, which is in heaven that we are those who are in Christ. It's in your perfect and holy name we pray. Amen.